We are continuing our study of the Apostles' Creed, and um, I was reminded of Jude, verse 1. It says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. I had a couple of questions last week, not challenging or belligerent questions, just questions that were very good questions and some clarifying questions. They said, um, Pastor, if the Bible is alive, why do we have to go back to roots? If the Bible is alive, can it change from generation to generation? Um, we, I don't have time to really go into a lot of detail, but I want to say this. The teaching of Orthodox Christianity for 2,000 years is found in Jude, where it says that there is a truth that was once and for all, and the language that's used there means it came in its completed form, and it was not negotiable. It was not changing. Now, um, we do believe that the Lord can make application to our heart any way He wants to. We believe that um, it's up to every generation to present the truth in a relevant uh, way, uh, in a contemporary way, but the truth never changes. The Word doesn't change. And uh, we, I, I can't remember if we've done it in here or with SCSL. I can't remember where I talked about it. So forgive me if I'm repeating myself. But we talked about the gospel, um, the gospel being the picture, the photograph that can have different frames. You know, um, a, there's a frame that you would use in the family room, a frame for the bedroom, a frame for the, you know, the living room or a grand hall or whatever. Um, you know, even for the bathroom, it's okay to change frames, but the picture remains the same. And um, we, we just basically wanted to say that we do believe that the Scripture is alive. I mean, that's what the Bible says about itself. It's alive and powerful and sharp any two-edged sword. But the meaning does not change from generation to generation. There, there's a move among some Christians today to do away with um, images of the blood and of sacrifice because they say they don't relate to our culture. But um, I, I think we're intelligent enough to understand a picture from another time. And uh, we don't have to change the essence of the, uh, of, of the doctrine of the cross. So I would just refer you to, to those. And, the, and there were good questions. Chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, I think. No, just verse 3, uh, that we are to contend. That means we stand for that. And um, we were told by the early church to stand for what has been delivered as the truth of the gospel. So when we talk about the Apostles' Creed, um, we spent the first week um, talking about the history of the creed, why the creeds were important, that the creeds were not equal to Scripture, but they were a summary of scriptural teachings. We talked about um, in the Bible there were what, depending on which version you read, sometimes they're called faithful sayings or, or sayings of truth. Um, that's where the creeds began. We go um, to the Didache, uh, which is uh, a second century teaching, uh, a commentary on how to do church life. Um, I'm, I'm preaching this Sunday on the Lord's table. We're just going to have a big 
communion service. Uh, we're not just we're not tacking communion on. We're, the whole service is about communion. And I was reading uh, while I was studying about the way the early church was told to do communion, how to, to receive communion from the Didache. That was the that was one of the first um, systematic teachings that were given. And the Apostles' Creed uh, comes from about 150. It was, it was the earliest creed, so far as we know, where church leader says, this is what we believe. Now, I just want to say this one more time, and I probably won't say it again. Um, you need to understand this about church history and about the creeds. The creeds were not the church saying, let's figure out what we believe. The creeds were the church saying, there's questions, so let's tell everyone what we have historically believed. In other words, um, the, the Nicene Creed, uh, you know, in, in the 300s, the, the Nicene Creed didn't come up with the doctrine of the divinity of Jesus. Uh, it, it said there's different teaching going around that Jesus was not divine. So we want to go back to what has been taught from the beginning and the creed affirmed what has already been, had, had been being taught uh, since the beginning of the church. Now that was lesson number one. Lesson uh, number two was about the God we serve. Uh, it says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. Now, tonight we go to the, the second doctrinal statement, lesson number three. We're going to talk about what the creed implies about Jesus. I believe in God, the Almighty Father. And then it goes on to say, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. And the writing of this creed is so well done, coming from Greek and Latin and into English but every phrase is important. Every name is important. Uh, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. Now, uh, some of the older versions say he descended into hell, and we'll talk about that. Um, the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. Now, next lesson, number four, we'll talk about the Holy Spirit, uh, what the early church taught about the Holy Spirit. And then um, we'll wrap it up by talking about uh, the, the community he has created, the church, and then his, his return in, in the final lesson. Um, Lord, we do ask you to help us, help us to stay on track and help us to understand. I, this is my prayer request, Lord. It's not necessary, but I just pray that every one of us would walk away learning something tonight, a, a new fact, a, a new perspective that will help us to love you more than we've ever loved you before. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, um, the creeds are really um, upping the ante. There are consequences from the creeds. Now, again, the creeds are not equal to Scripture. My goodness. It's, it's great to be wanted, but let me turn that off a little bit here. Um, uh, the, the, the creeds are, as I said, it's upping the ante because... We had the scripture, but the creed served this purpose. They said to every believer, we want to be sure you understand where we're drawing this line. 
And the creeds really drew some lines that a lot of Christians, they aren't comfortable in observing. For instance, um, the first phrase, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the Creator of heaven and earth, that separates Christianity from Hinduism, Eastern religions, Asian religions, all the blends of New Age. It says there is one God. There is no religion that has a pantheon of gods. There is no... Um, uh, it, it, it says we, we are monotheistic. There is one God. And even when we talked about the Trinity, we understood that the Trinity says there is a mystery that is beyond our comprehension, but the Lord our God is still one. He is, he is one Lord. He's not one God with three personalities. That's not accurate. He's not three gods that really work closely together. He is something that is beyond our comprehension beyond, as far as we know, anything to compare it to. It's called the mystery of the Trinity. So last week, the opening statement says, we're not like the religions of the world that are, are polytheistic. This second phrase tonight, and this is going to sound harsh to some of you, but this second phrase sets a distinction between us and Islam and even Judaism. Now, we, we, um, we, we don't have a good history with Islam, Christianity, but we came out of Judaism. And we, you know, we, we met for our Israel trip planning tonight, and we feel like we're, just, we're going to visit family when we go to Israel. And we, we honor Israel and we pray for Israel. But the fact of the matter, there is a big division between Christianity and Judaism that has to be resolved before everything's going to be set right. Israel has to deal with the question of what do you do with Jesus? Archie Kendall wrote a letter to Benjamin Netanyahu that I thought was just fantastic. And in this letter, he, he voiced his support for Israel, his support for um, the prime minister and all that he's done. He says, but there's still the elephant in the room and it is, what do we do with Jesus? And he, in that letter, urged the prime minister uh, as a Jew to take a look at Jesus' claim to be Messiah. Um, when we come to the end of the day, we've got to understand that we are very friendly toward uh, Judaism. But we have a doctrine that places us on a separate plane from every other religion in the world. And we're accused of being intolerant. We're accused of being unloving. But um, I remember a, a few years ago when Adrian Rogers was uh, president of the, uh, help me brother David, Southern Baptist Convention, of the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, he was criticized for saying that Jesus was the only way to heaven. And he was criticized because the people said, you're, you're saying that Jews who worship the same God are lost without Jesus. And Adrian Rogers, who's one of the kindest men you could ever meet, uh, he could tell you you're going to hell with a smile on his face and just make you glad that he told you. You know, he's just an amazing man. And um, he, said, he said, I want you to know I believe that so strongly that my own son will go to hell 
without a trust in Jesus Christ. He said, we're not talking about people out there. We're talking about all of us. We're all lost without Jesus. And I don't think the news media ever understood what he was trying to say. But we really do. And the Apostles' Creed verifies this. There is no God but Jehovah. And we believe that there is no Messiah but Jesus. And even with all that Judaism has right, and even though we grew out of Judaism, there's still, the Apostles' Creed says, there's the issue of Jesus as Messiah. Uh, Jesus made a statement that is beyond dispute and just lifts the argument um, out, out of the realm of the debatable. Jesus says, there is no way to come to the Father but through me. And we stand by that. You might be surprised. I don't mean to embarrass anybody. I don't know that there's anybody here that this would be true of. But you'd be surprised how many people through the years that have applied for membership in our church that love everything we do but don't believe Jesus is necessarily the only way to heaven. And we have to say, you're not on the same page with us. You're welcome to come. We want you to come because we want you to come to that place of faith and confidence in Jesus. But we, we're, we're not trying to figure out how to make everybody happy. And we're not trying to figure out how to accommodate everyone. We're trying to figure out how to reach everyone and how to convert everyone to, to Jesus. Now, um, and, and I think it's interesting that this longer section about the Son stands between two short sections on the Father and the Spirit. I don't think it's the creed is trying to say that Jesus is greater than the Father or Jesus is greater than the Spirit. I think the, the early writers of the creed understood that a lot of people will say there is a God. And a lot of people will say that there is a Spirit or an influence of God. But, he, but the creedal writers were saying, where you draw the line is over Jesus. Jesus is where you have to draw the line. Um, so we, we understand that Jesus is the Messiah. So let's just kind of run through some of the phrases that are used here. Um, the first phrase is the word Jesus. Um, Jesus is an anglicized form of, of Yeshua or Joshua. If Jesus was in our culture, he might come to church and be called Josh, you know. I mean, it was, it was a very common name, but it was a significant name. Um, and it means that God is Savior. Um, he, Jesus is a historical figure who was born in about 4 B.C. And um, uh, we, we know that because of the, uh, uh, the reigns of the emperors and things like that. You say, well, then I thought he was born in year one. You know, well, that's the way we figured it. And then when we changed to the Gregorian calendar, we adjusted. And the actual birth of Jesus, we think, was, was not in that year one, but it was, was about, about three or four years earlier. We know it was before uh, 6 or 7 B.C. We know, uh, I, mean, I mean after that, we know it was before uh, 3 B.C., so it's four or five right in there, B.C., and we know that he died in 29 or 30. You say, well, Pastor, he, I mean, that's not right because we know he was 33 when he died. No, we don't. We know that he was about 30 when he began his ministry. The only other reference to his age is people said, he, he can't be 
what he's claiming to be. He's not even 40 years old yet. So we know, we, we know he's between 30 and 40. And the reason we say 33 is that in the Gospel of John there are three Passovers that refer to his ministry. So from the Gospel of John we know Jesus ministered for at least three years. Technically about three and a half years. Uh, you're, you're not wanting to stone me over this, are you? I mean, you're, you're okay. So we're not sure. Jesus was probably, we know that he was at least 33 when he was crucified and may have been as old as 35. We just don't know because um, I, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell a beautiful story of Jesus, but it's John that nails down the feast days. Um, John only covers about 12 days in the life of Jesus. Uh, besides chapter 1 where it talks about his pre-incarnate state. But there's only about 12 days covered in John and, and most of them revolve around feasts. So that's where we get the idea of, of how long Jesus ministered. Um, for about three years he traveled as a rabbi and his ministry is described in the four gospel records. Um, uh, ah, let me go ahead and say this. Um, we have the four Gospels. Uh, this is just, just if you come across the Word, you won't get to heaven any quicker knowing this. But um, we have what we call the synoptic. Sin, uh, you know, meaning one or, or together. Optic meaning view. Um, and that's S-Y-N, not S-I-N, by the way. Um, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're synoptic. It means they tell the story from basically the same view. Um, the, the writers take the same approach in telling their story. Matthew was apparently uh, written with a Jewish audience in mind because there's so much emphasis on Jewish uh, explanations and feasts and, and, uh, and, and, and postures in the book. Um, Mark was a collection, we, we know this, uh, of Peter's sermons. Um, uh, Mark was, was the protege of Peter. And the Gospel of Mark could also be called the Gospel of St. Peter because it's the story of Jesus from Peter's perspective. The church has said that for 2,000 years. Um, uh, Luke is um, written, it's the only one written from a Gentile perspective and it's written with a Roman or Greek audience in mind. And um, uh, you can tell that a physician wrote it because some of the descriptions of healings are very technical in, in the Greek. It, it, you could tell that a, that a medical mind was, was recording what happened just from little phrases here and there. And, um, and then John, there's a little bit of debate. John, some say that John is the gospel of belief. It's written to believers. It's written to give the church a theology, which I think is good. There's also a lot of truth that John may have been written to the Jewish mindset. Uh, but in a different way than Matthew. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke are synoptic. They, they are one view. And then John takes a different approach to telling the story of Jesus. It's not contradictory, but 92% of the Gospel of John is not in the other Gospels. So it's a different, uh, when, and when you go to Bible college or seminary, you will you'll take a class on the synoptic Gospels, and then you'll study John separately. Um, boy, I hope I didn't spend too much time on that. But, uh, but Jesus, that's Jesus, the historical figure. The, uh, he's referred to as not just Jesus, but Jesus Christ. Now that's not a surname 
like your last name or my last name, but it's a title which means the anointed one or, uh, or, or the Messiah. So he was God's savior king, the rescuer for whom Israel had been waiting. When he is seen as Messiah, he is seen as the ultimate prophet, the ultimate messenger from God. This is in your notes, isn't it? Okay. He's seen as the ultimate priest. That means the ultimate mediator between a holy God and sinful man. And he is seen as the king, the ruler and administrator of God's kingdom. That's a big thing. Uh, and the Jewish mind had to see all three of those dynamics uh, in the life of Jesus. Now, as God's only son, he holds a special place as being divine. Um, you know, I know there's a general sense in which we're all the children of God because we were created by God and we were made in His, His image. Um, but there is a sense in which He is the only begotten Son. Um, this phrase helps us understand that Jesus did not attain sonship like some groups teach, nor did He receive sonship because He lived a good life, but rather He existed in relationship to God from eternity. In the beginning, John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning uh, with God. Um, there is no question, there is no question that the Scripture teaches the eternality of Jesus and the deity of Jesus. Um, again, one of the trends in Christianity right now is the phrase, well, just, just, re just read the words of Jesus, and you'll see that He never claimed to be God. That's simply not true. Um, uh, he, he received worship as God. He received the adoration of people as God. When he was in conversation with Pilate, he made it clear that, yes, I am a king and I am God. You've said this. And when you read the Gospels, you may not find Jesus standing up saying, I'm God, but what you find all through the Gospels is this is why the Pharisees wanted to kill him because he made himself equal with God. So it's a, it, and you go to places like Acts chapter 20 where it speaks of the church and Paul says, um, and to the pastors, he said, now you shepherd the flock of God um, uh, and, 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 and take care of the church of God, which he, God, purchased with his own blood. So it, there's, there's no denying it. And I, and I put uh, uh, a couple of people that asked me some good books. Um, I put three or four, I think. Uh, are they in the footnote? The Case for the Divinity of Jesus, Putting Jesus in His Place, The Historical Jesus, and Jesus Among the Other Gods. These are four books that uh, I think would be helpful if you want to just look at uh, a scholarly, intellectual approach to this. Um, <clears throat> Okay, I got to, y'all are not helping me tonight. Um, um, oh yeah, I did put Acts chapter 20, 28 in there. There's a couple other passages that I would just refer you to. Now, the, the creed, um, it, it would be in the next major creed, the Nicene creed, that this was brought to bear. But the question had to be answered, was Jesus half God and half man? What was he? And the church in another creed that we'll study some other time, but the church made the decision to uh, really make it clear that he was fully God and fully man. 
if you read the notes that I did for church history, which we're, we're getting ready to, put, to print that as a book. But if you, if you looked at those notes, you remember that in the Nicene Creed and Nicene Council, there was, there was um, this doctrine was defined by a punctuation point and a small word. It was so important though that they understood that Jesus did not become God or Jesus did not get the God merit badge. Jesus was fully God and fully man. That's why it is important that we teach and believe the virgin birth of Jesus. Now you say it's hard to wrap your head around that. I know it is. But being born of a virgin, that's not nearly a miracle to me as living 30, 35 years sinless. I mean, that's, that's huge. I mean, that's huge. Um, uh, we, we need to understand, and, and, and I don't mean any disrespect to the Catholic Church, but we don't have to reverse engineer Mary for her to give birth to the, to the Son of God. Uh, it did not require her to be sinless. It did not require her to be preserved from the fallen nature. And it did not require her to have a perpetual virginity. Um, that's why the art in the Middle Ages marries this young teenage girl and Joseph is an old man with a gray beard. Um, it's because when the church tried to deal with this idea of the virgin birth, they said, well, if Mary's going to give birth to God, then we've got to go back and, and make Mary something significant. And I want to tell you, on the day of Pentecost, Mary was in prayer with all the other disciples. Uh, we, we do not teach, and, and, we, and we, we, we don't dishonor Mary, and we don't dishonor our brothers and sisters in the Catholic Church. But um, we don't believe that Mary is a co-redemptrix. We don't believe that Jesus needed Mary um, to save mankind. And so that's why we don't venerate Mary. We honor her. Uh, and I don't think Mary gets the, the credit she deserves. Um, but um, uh, the, the, we do not have to set Mary up on a divine pedestal for her to be the mother of Jesus. But it is important that we understand that Jesus was born of a virgin. Uh, some of the theologians, especially uh, when you read theologians from the early 20th century, they'll say things like, it doesn't matter if Jesus was born of a virgin. It doesn't matter if Jesus was really raised from the dead. It doesn't matter if Jesus really performed these miracles. All that matters is that He inspires faith in us and we trust God. And guys, I want to tell you, the whole thing begins to break down when we deny some of these basic doctrines. Um, so the gospel gives us what one writer called uh, entry and exit miracles. He came by a miracle. He left by a miracle. You know, the resurrection and ascension. And I like what, um, I, I, um, was it John Piper? I can't remember. But he said the virgin birth is not an, uh, an act to prove his divinity. He says rather it was to confirm his humanity. He said it wasn't, he said the emphasis to the church wasn't that we know he was God because he was born of a virgin. The emphasis to the church was he was born of a woman so he know, we know he was us. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we know that when Jesus came he was fully God and he was fully man. And what Jesus did, everything he did, 
He did by faith in the Father. Every miracle he performed, everything he did was showing us how life was meant to be lived. So that's, a, that's an important distinction uh, to, the, to the early church. Um, the gospel has seven components that we consider to be non-negotiable and irreducible. Uh, and this is not our core values, this is, but this is the plan of the gospel. We believe that it is impossible to have a, an accurate view of Jesus without holding to these things. Now, you, we can differ on the mode of baptism. We can differ on Mary. We can differ on communion. Uh, you know, Sunday when we talk about communion, I'm going to talk about some of the different perspectives on communion. But these seven are absolutely non-negotiable. Number one, Jesus is God. He was God when He came. He was divine. He's always been divine. He is still divine. Jesus is God. Number two, He was born of a virgin, fully God and fully man. Number three, He lived a sinless life. A sinless life. Number four, He died a substitutionary death. Number five, He was physically raised from the dead. Number six, he ascended to the right hand of God. He lives there to make intercession for us. And number seven, even though people differ on how he will return and when he will return, he will physically return to earth in order to establish his kingdom. Now I said these things are non-negotiable. I need to say this about number seven. There, there are some Christians that believe that Jesus may not physically return to earth, but that through the church, he will establish his kingdom. I don't believe that. I think it's wrong. I, I, you know, the angels in Acts, when Jesus ascended, they said, This same Jesus shall so come in like manner as you've seen him go. Um, I, I don't think there's any reliable argument that says Jesus is not literally coming back. But I do have to say, I've known some Christians that don't believe in the physical return of Jesus. They believe that the return of Jesus is when he comes into our hearts. But they believe in salvation. They believe in those things. So you might put a, a non-negotiable with a little question mark on number seven. But uh, I, I think it's I think it's uh, it's utterly clear as we study the scripture. Now the scripture or the creed rather also says that he suffered under Pontius Pilate. That seems that seems strange to us. Um, we know that that is a historical fact. We know that that occurred. But why was it so important, um, his, his, his suffering under the, the Roman governor? The, he's known as the man who, who killed Jesus. And um, as we go back to the earliest commentaries on the creed, um, it, this one thing seems to surface. They wanted to say he suffered under Pontius Pilate because they wanted us to understand that the suffering of Jesus was not some metaphysical something, but it was a historical, physical suffering. And the idea to the early church of suffering carried the meaning of being affected by someone else's actions. In other words, he didn't just suffer, and he didn't suffer for his sins, he suffered because of our sins. And that was, that was what they were trying to convey. His physical suffering was real and it was because of us. 
not because of himself. Peter said in his epistles, he said, if any of you is, is suffers, don't, don't suffer because you've been a thief or you've been a liar or you've broken the law. He said, suffer because you've been a child of God. And uh, it, it was important to the early church to understand this. There was no virtue in suffering in and of itself for Jesus. But the virtue was that he suffered for someone else because of their actions. Man's wrath was used, even anointed by God, to secure salvation for the guilty by a price paid for the innocent. That's big. Um, the, the church went through hundreds of years where they thought there was something redemptive in suffering. And so they would beat themselves and they would deny themselves and they would deny any kind of comfort. And um, that was a mistake the church made because the church was trying to say, I've got to pay for my sins. But the suffering, and Jesus was cited as the example. But the thing that was beautiful about the suffering of Jesus is that he did not deserve it. It was all on us. And that's why Justin doesn't need to beat himself. And I don't need to deny myself. Uh, I mean, other than to live a godly life, because suffering does not bring us redemption, but because Jesus suffered for our sins. That's what was meant by, uh, uh, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Now there's a Bible word called propitiation, um, and John uses it, and it's, it's, it's not used in all translations. But uh, the scripture in King James says he's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. And that word propitiation means a full satisfaction for the offenses, a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, um, uh, oblation and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. That's from an early prayer book. It was important for them to understand that his suffering was real. His suffering was because of us, and his suffering totally satisfied the wrath of God and the demands of God. There's a similar word um, that you see in some translations called expiation. Uh, it means a blotting out of our sins. That the, the difference between propitiation and expiation, propitiation says his suffering was enough. And expiation indicates that his suffering brought reconciliation and redemption. So those two words are powerful words. We don't use them much because it's hard to get that on a refrigerator magnet and use as a memory verse. Um, and it's hard to get our little ones to, to recite that. But Jesus' suffering was real. It was, it was for our sins. And it's satisfied. I don't, I don't need to die for my sins because Jesus has already done that. Okay, and, and that's, a, that's a big thing. I don't know if I'm making it very clear for you. Now we come to the point where it says he descended into hell or the modern translation. I'm sorry, I'm trying to be sure I get done on time. Um, the modern translation says that he descended to the dead. Uh, in the Middle Ages, there was a teaching that grew out of the wording of the Apostles' Creed. Um, and it, it taught basically that Jesus went to hell the place of damnation, and there he won a victory, and there he preached to souls. Um, and, there's, and there's comfort there, because one of the Puritans wrote this, Christ leads me through no darker doors than he himself went through before. I shall change my place, but I shall not change my company. 
And this is what he said when he was about to die. But what we'll find, and, and guys, we could, we could literally spend three weeks on this, but let me just say this. The creed speaks of Hades, which means the grave. It's the place of the dead, not Gehenna, the hell of torment. And there's a big difference. Um, um, you know, I, I had a person I was trying to witness to one time said, well, we all go to hell. We all go to hell. And I said, we don't have to. And he said, oh yeah, we do. And he quoted some Old Testament passages. And I said, you need to understand that word is speaking of Hades, which is the grave. We all go to the grave, but we don't all go to hell. And there's a difference between the grave and the place of torment. Um, the, why did they say he descended to the dead? This is to emphasize the fact that Jesus truly died physically, not metaphorically, or just spiritually. Um, you know, and, and you'd be surprised how many people teach that Jesus died, but not physically. You know. um, um, even some world religions teach that Jesus just passed out on the cross and that his disciples resuscitated him. They said, no, he descended into hell. He descended into the grave. He was dead. He was measurably dead. They knew he was dead. Um, that's the emphasis is that Jesus truly died. Now I want to say this. This is why I say it could take us three weeks. There are some unanswered questions about the state of the dead. But when Jesus descended into the grave on some level, we don't understand all of it. But on some level, he apparently did three things. Now, this, this is based on the idea that in the, in the Old Testament, men went to paradise uh, that, that were righteous. They, they went to a place of Abraham's bosom, if you want to use that uh, story Jesus told about the rich man. Um, he turned the realm of the dead into a place of paradise. Okay, we know he did that. What that means, we don't know because... Paul said this, he said it twice, we know that as Christians to be absent from the body, we are to be present with the Lord. Um, now, does that mean that our, our, our spirits go to heaven to be with the Lord? Or is this place called paradise in the realm of God's presence? We, we don't understand. Um, or, or I mean, to me, the Bible doesn't state specifically. We, we know that the Bible does not teach soul sleep. We, we know the Bible does not teach that um, when we die, we go to sleep and we wake up on resurrection day. Now, the Bible uses the word sleep to describe the state of death, but, uh, and it uses the idea of awakening. But that's, that's, a, um, uh, in, in, that's illustrative language. He doesn't say that we go to sleep and then we'll wake up on resurrection day. We don't understand all that's going on because we won't be in our final state until Jesus returns. We are in his presence. Our spirits are in his presence, whether it's in this place of paradise or heaven. I'll tell you this, we know it's with the Lord. So wherever it is, it's heaven, you know, it's a place of paradise, but not until Jesus comes, will our bodies be raised and join with our spirit. You know, there, there, are, there are Christians that have been dead for 2,000 years and they're in the presence of the, God, of the Lord, but not until resurrection day will they have their final state where we have the resurrected 
body. But whatever it looks like, Jesus turned the realm of the dead into paradise for those that were saints. Um, Another writer puts it this way, he perfected the spirits of Old Testament believers. Um, We don't know the exact state of the Old Testament. We know they were in a place called Abraham's bosom. It was a place of paradise. Uh, You might not know this because it's just an obscure little verse in Matthew, just one little verse. But but the, the resurrection of Jesus, his crucifixion and his resurrection saw dead saints raised and went about from house to house uh, visiting relatives. I mean, that's, that's, not, that's not myth. That's in the Bible. But it just takes one little verse uh, is, is all. We, we don't know. But something happened. Old Testament saints, their spirits were perfected. And for some reason, God let them go to loved ones and be seen of them. You say, well, God wouldn't do that. He tells us not to communicate with the dead. No, he tells us not to seek communication with the dead. But he can do whatever he wants to do, you know. Well, you're, you're getting nervous and it's thundering. So let me, <laughs> let me go ahead. Number three, he, pro, he proclaimed God's rule to those who were held for rebellion. Per, this is in Peter, perhaps angels of the rebellion or at least some of the angels of the fall. I want to tell you, this is a fascinating thing. Um, there are some angels that have been reserved in darkness. You say, well, I thought demons were angels. We don't know what demons are. We know they are are servants of the enemy. We put two and two together and say, well, the demons are fallen angels. But the Bible doesn't teach that. I mean, it doesn't teach against that. It just doesn't tell us. We just know this about demons. We don't like them. They're ugly. They smell bad. And we don't want them in our lives. But we don't know for sure what they were. I personally believe that demons are fallen angels because of the nature of the angelic ministry. God uses angels so it would make sense that the enemy uses fallen angels. And I think they are evil spirits. I think that's what they are. But I want to say this. If I'm right on that, then there were some angels, there are some angels that their grievance was so, or their sin was so grievous that God has kept them in chains and they've not been allowed to roam the world of men. In Revelation, there are some angels that are bound that will be released in the time of the end. So we just don't know what goes on. We know there are, there are, there are some angels that are bound. We know there are some angels that are kept in chains of darkness. If we're right that demons are angels, there are some that are free for the time being. Uh, and, and I do believe, don't, don't get me wrong, I do believe that demons are fallen angels. But whatever that angelic world looks like, Jesus went and shook everything up and, uh, and proclaimed the gospel. And it didn't mean that those fallen angels got saved. It means that here is a formal declaration of your guilt and your punishment. Um, the third day, we got to hurry, y'all. Um, the third day, um, it's, it's just it's telling us the importance of the resurrection of Christ. Paul would tell the Corinthians, he said, if Christ is not dead, I mean, is not raised from the dead, what you believe is pointless. Your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. 
that's why I cannot conceive of anybody saying it doesn't matter if Jesus really rose from the dead or not. Paul said if he didn't rise from the dead, we're still in our sin. We are lost as a goose in a snowstorm. That's from the Chitty Revised Standard Version. And he said if Jesus is not dead, uh, I'm sorry, not raised from the dead, then nothing you believe matters. So the creed is saying he was raised on the third day. And when we get to Easter, we'll talk about how we add up the third day. Um, people get so upset. They said Jesus had to die on Thursday because it was three days and nights. Um, so he had to have three days and nights in the grave. Um, but when you understand the way that the Hebrew mind reckons days and nights, if, if he was in the grave for three days and nights, then he wasn't raised on the third day. He was raised on the fourth day. Um, but the way the Hebrew mind, I, go home and eat and sleep. Don't worry about this. But the way the Hebrew mind reckoned things, any part of a day was considered a day. And any part of a night was considered a night. So he was raised on the third day, just as the scripture says. And faith, the Apostles' Creed tells us, is in vain apart from the resurrection. Um, and the resurrection, the evidence for it is overwhelming. For over a month, Jesus kept meeting with his followers in different settings and in groups ranging in size from two to 500. This is not the way hallucinations occur. Um, he, it was described as infallible proofs. Um, and, and I'm going to tell you what um, one skeptic said. He started out writing a book touring the Middle East to prove that Jesus was a hoax. And the more he studied, the more he saw, he became converted trying to prove that Jesus was a hoax. And this is what he said, and, and, I, and I agree. He said, based on the universal laws of accepted jurisprudence. In other words, he says, every, at least Western civilization he's talking about, every principle of the law follows the same procedure. He says, any court in, a Western, uh, in Western civilization would say without fear of contradiction that there is more proof that Jesus was raised from the dead than there is proof that Julius Caesar even existed. So um, it, it, we, we, don't, we don't need to, to try to apologetically say, well, I just believe. I mean, the facts are on our side. The last thing, he ascended to heaven. Um, we believe that he ascended and he's coming back. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven uh, will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. And he's gone to the right hand of the Father. This is emphasizing God's presence. And as he is seated at the right hand of the Father, we are the object of his prayer. We are the object of his prayer. He shall come again. It is our certain and glorious blessed hope. And it is our call to preparation. Now every one of those points the creed said is essential to faith. So don't be seduced by somebody that says Jesus was a great teacher. But he may not have been this and he may not have done that. The Apostles Creed says this is what scripture teaches. This is what the church has proclaimed. And Jude would say, this is the faith that has been once and all for all delivered to the saints. I finished right on time. Perfect, perfect. Now, um, 
as we go, I know you've got to go get your kids, but I, but I have to say this before we go. If you're here and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, um, we don't usually have big elaborate altar calls with music playing and the heads bowed and asking people to come. Not because we think there's anything wrong with that at all. We just do it a little bit differently and it's worked well for us. We simply ask you to come see one of the pastors or if you came with a friend, tell them you want to know more about serving Jesus and we would love to pray with you before you go. Um, we're not asking you to join the church. In fact, the doors of church membership aren't even open tonight. Um, salvation is not joining the church. Salvation is not becoming assemblies of God. Salvation is taking Jesus as the forgiver of your sins. And if you want to do that before you leave, be sure to talk to someone or one of the pastors on your way out. Father, thank you for helping us get our roots a little bit deeper. Thank you for teaching us about uh, God Almighty Father, creator of heaven and earth, and his son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the gospel that has been delivered to us conclusively, um, ultimately, without fear of change or alteration, my faith, my hope, my trust has found a resting place, not in device or creed in the wrong sense of the word, but we trust the ever living one, his wounds that are sufficient for me. Thank you, Father. Help us to fall in love more and more with Jesus and help us to stop being pushed back, knocked on our heels by people with a shallow argument and a slick disagreement. Father, teach us to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Teach us to push back by faith because we believe in the true and the living God and in his son Jesus. Help us in your name we pray, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here tonight. I love you guys.